This is episode number 295. How can one escape hopelessness with Elizabeth Kristoff? Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohit, and this is the Overcoming Outs podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to make a few quick announcements. First one being a shout out to our sponsor, and that is this episode is sponsored by Say Your Peace. Say Your Peace aims to spark global change through self-transformation and community dialogue. Share your story by using hashtag SayYourPeace, that's P-E-A-C-E, and following them on Instagram and Facebook. The other announcement that I wanted to make is in regard to our show. And that is if our show has had any form of impact in your life, please consider supporting our cause by either making a contribution through our website at overcomingodds.today or leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. Also, if you like what you heard, consider joining us every single Friday at 10.45 a.m. Central Time for our weekly series called Survive to Thrive, Live the Story You Create. What this is, is a weekly discussion where we explore the connection between one's personal narrative and the topics of resilience, grief, appreciation, gratitude, and many others. If you feel like this message aligns with you, please consider joining us live either through Facebook or LinkedIn on any given Friday at 10.45 a.m. Central Time where you'll be able to share your own insights and your own perspectives as it relates to each and every given topic. Now, let's get back to the show. Elizabeth, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited of, always of to talk course. with you. <laughs> now, of course, I'm always, I'm always happy to have these conversations with you. And um, you are one of probably a handful of people. There's another person that I, I speak with frequently. Her name is Nancy John. And I always make a joke with her that if I don't hit the record button, we'll just end up talking for like hours and hours and hours. And I, I think there's something totally. to be said about like that synergy, you know, when you connect with someone and you just um, are able to converse about anything and everything there is uh, on the face of the earth. And there's a lot of beauty within that. But then at the same time, like if we don't choose to hit the record button, then gotta reel it in sometimes yeah absolutely absolutely but I, i'm glad we're able to connect and and as i mentioned to you earlier there's a an organization called say your peace that is actually going to be sponsoring this particular episode along with a couple others and the topic that i wanted to have a conversation with you about is this concept of hopelessness and in particular how can one escape it and I figured that maybe the best way to even start off this particular conversation is, was there a time in your life where you felt hopeless? And if so, how did you know? How did you know that it was a hopeless situation and not something that's completely different? Loaded question after that. There have been a couple of different times in my life where I've felt hopeless. I am an alcoholic addict in recovery. So I've had a bottom with my drinking and, um, 
that was a, a moment of hopelessness that required a lot of complete surrender. And then I have had other times in my life where I reached a point in trying to control and manage my life that it was no longer sustainable and it life just kind of broke me down until I would end up on the floor in that position of just, you know, hands up. I don't know, shouting out that prayer that a lot of people are probably familiar with of just help, you know, to whatever is out there and having my, my ego crack down enough to let something else in, to let a new identity, a new possibility and, and there was a time like that right before I started this business where I lost my last business. I dissolved my partnership shares in a business I'd had for 12 years. My romantic partner at the time had been diagnosed with cancer. I was caring for him full time. A lot of my own childhood trauma came back and a lot of my behaviors were really um, out of alignment with the way I wanted to live my life. I was experiencing a lot of really negative outputs from my own nervous system and the way I look at things is through applied neurology and through the lens of the nervous system. And I was experiencing a lot of binge eating and migraine and chronic pain and dissociation. It was a really tough time. And there were definitely moments in that time where I felt, I felt hopeless. Mm. I can relate to, I think some portions of what you just shared. I, I personally have never experienced that form of addiction, but I think I probably have had different addictions throughout my time. I know one of them <coughs> for a pretty significant chapter of my life was the phone and, and social media and things like that. And, mm -hmm. and I know that it weighed down on me quite a bit as far as I had a much more difficult time trying to be in the moment and actually be present with whoever it is that was in front of me because I was so consumed by the media and notifications and the, just the desire, I think, to be liked. And then I remember I was watching a video by someone who had mentioned to me that one of the reasons why some people experience that form of addiction is that they don't want to feel rejected. So getting the notifications was a form of acceptance from people that I may or may not know. I know that other forms of addictions, I've personally never, I can't say I've ever had any uh, addiction with alcohol, but I do know of people who have had those things. And it got to a point where, especially with one of them, he had to give it up completely because it got to that point. It got to the point where he was just so dependent on it. And, and that's one of the things that I'm also curious in, in exploring with you when it came to your own addiction in, in your dependency on it, how did you, how did you break through that? How did you get away from having to rely on it every single time? And, and then I guess the other question is how bad did it get? Um, I think I, I was able to break through because of a combination of, of grace and privilege that I, I'm in a situation where I'm able to receive support in life and where maybe some of my consequences weren't as severe as someone else who would be coming from a different socioeconomic status or doesn't look like me. And I, I think though, really what allowed me to break through free from my addiction. I have not had a drink since 2007, oh, wow. um, is that there was a moment where my ego was shattered enough to let in a little bit of light of truth. And in that moment, I was able to surrender 
and to be open to a new possibility beyond my small way of seeing the world, beyond what I thought as were the hard, fast truths of my life, that this is just the way that I was, that this is the way life was. And, and that's true for me in the other situation as well, whether that moment of hopelessness comes from external situations, you know, I was under a tremendous amount of financial stress and it felt like the floor was always falling out from underneath me. And I just couldn't grab a hold of my reality anymore. I couldn't seem to get on stable ground. And every time I tried, I felt like the floor fell right out from underneath me again. And so whether that moment of hopelessness came from my own behavior and my own mind, like it did with the addiction or from the external circumstances, like it would later in life in combination with my own mind, it really took a mindset of surrender and of curiosity to move through to the other side. I had to become willing to stop trying to push through in the ways that weren't working anymore, stop judging myself, stop um, punishing myself and become very curious about my behavior. And I had to ask for help. I had to ask for support. Mm. Why'd you start drinking to begin with? I am someone who has a lot of childhood trauma. I come from um, a long lineage of trauma and um, that has Welcome been passed down through the, yeah, <laughs> through the generations as many of us do. Right. I know I'm not alone in this. And I, without knowing it, most of my life, I lived in a really dysregulated state. And what I mean by that is, so again, I'm an applied neurologist. I practice applied neurology to help heal nervous system deficits. And so I look at things most of the time through the lens of the nervous system is our operating system and it guides all of our behaviors and it dictates our life experience, whether we're able to be present and connected or whether we are in a state of fight and flight or whether we're shut down in a state of freeze. And without knowing it at the time, I was constantly stuck in this state of hypervigilance in this state of too much stress for too long. And I believe deeply that all of our behaviors are our brain's best bet to get the stimulus that it needs to feel safe. And our brain is always deciding safe or unsafe and living in that state of dysregulation for too long, having the nervous system stuck in a sympathetic, a fight and flight response or stuck in freeze is dangerous. It leads to disease. It causes problems with the immune system. It causes problems with inflammation and our old brains, our survival brains and our bodies understand this at a really deep level and we'll do something to drive our behavior, to get us to regulate ourselves, to get the stimulus that the brain needs to calm the nervous system, to give certain areas of the brain stimulus. And drinking alcohol is one really good way to do that. And so from an early age, I, I, I have always had big emotions and I acted out. I had big tantrums. I engaged in self-harm. I was just kind of flailing around. My binge eating started at a really early age and I was just very, very dysregulated. And so when I found alcohol, I truly believe it honestly saved my life at the time because it allowed my nervous system to move out of that state of chronic stress, to calm down for just a little bit. It blanketed my nervous system. And though it was not serving me long-term and it would end up putting me in dangerous situations that re-traumatized me, it at 
in that moment was giving my body and my brain the stimulus that they needed to to be safe, to be more regulated. And I truly believe maybe pre prevented me from getting disease at that time, from being so dysregulated, getting autoimmune or cancer. And I believe food binge eating did the same thing too. And so until I had new tools to help me regulate my nervous system and a path forward to learn how to be differently, that was really the best I could do. So I started drinking probably at the age of like 14, really just in an in an attempt to, to feel better, to, to not feel so dysregulated all of the time. I've had a lot of friends that started to drink when they were younger <clears throat> to prevent a lot of the social anxiety that was encountered yeah. with it. And, and I know that for me, like I said earlier, I didn't really experience that, but I could always relate to someone who has had similar circumstances like that. Not to go too far down this rabbit hole, but you know, knowing the two of us, we might. So wherever it goes, that's where it goes. But I'm curious when it comes to this concept of the brain, one of the things that I've learned is that the brain doesn't recognize something, whether it's good or bad. It, I think there is, it, it just kind of adapts to whatever the, whatever the things that allow it to cope and, and put it, as you said, in, in this concept or this state of safety, where does the good and where does the good and bad actually formulate in the brain? And how does that actually work? if you have experience in that area, like how are we able to recognize and break some of these patterns through recognizing that, okay, drinking is not the best form, but maybe going on the bike ride is. And so breaking those things that the brain may want to fall back to, or is that just a natural thing that the brain wants to do, regardless of what the activity is, it could be the most harmful or the least harmful. Like, how do you, how does it tell the difference? Or how can you tell so the difference, I guess? We're really talking about different areas of the brain. So the old brain, the back brain, some people refer to it as like the reptilian brain, it's the brainstem. It controls all of your autonomic functions and it is really just concerned with safe or unsafe survival in this moment right now. And so it will push you to engage in those behaviors. Then we also have our prefrontal cortex, which is our higher order thinking system. And this part of our brain is like, I don't want to drink every day and sabotage my life. I don't want to eat foods that my body doesn't like and that make me feel sick. I don't, I want to get up at this time. Right. And so our higher order thinking systems where our, our goals live, it's, it's our human part of the brain that allows us to have speech and um, connection and, and to plan ahead. And so what, what I think is very essential and what I do with a lot of my clients is we have to create safety first for the old brain, for the animal body. So learning how to regulate your system, understanding that your body plays a, a huge role in your felt sense of the world and your sense of safety and whether or not you're okay or not. Um, you know, you need tools that can help you discharge stress through the body regulate yourself and feel safe. And when the old brain and the animal body feel safe, then we can be more able to achieve the goals that we have for ourselves to, to move after the things that we want in life to change our behavior. But we have to figure out what it is that we need to stay regulated and to stay safe first so that that becomes possible. 
how do you do this? How are you able to process a lot of this really complicated information in this way that literally makes sense to everyone who's listening, including yourself? Like, is there a strategy that you particularly rely on? Or is it just simply the way that you're able to learn and absorb some of these more complex topics and make them into tangible forms, so to speak? Well, I think for me, how I'm able to achieve this, how I'm able mm -hmm. to achieve the safety is through understanding that there's not as much divide between our brain and our body as we're maybe originally taught as, as our society has us grow up believing that it's really one inter integrated system. There's no like brain and body. It's, it's a brain body system. And, uh, and in part of that is all of your, it's your nervous system. It's your endocrine system. It's everything working together. And so for me, to create that safety and to heal these emotions, what I've had to do is process things through my body, develop a practice of starting to learn to listen to my body, to come back into my body and to hear the signals that it's giving me. And I, I really believe that all of us inherently know what we need to do to heal, to process stress, to move emotions through the body. Our animal bodies know what to do, but we've civilized ourselves out of that deep knowing it's not okay to express emotions. It's not okay to be angry sometimes. And so we, we shove all of that down, which dysregulates us. And it also cuts us off from that knowing that is inside of us that, that, that we are born with the knowledge of how to do to shake when you need to discharge energy to cry when you need to process grief to scream or move around in a certain way when you have anger to uphold your boundaries um, with that movement. And so I think just the best starting place with that is just to very simply start to come back into your body with a, a, a short practice of maybe 30 seconds a day, just dropping from your head down into your body and beginning to read as many signals as you can. What can I feel my heart beating? Can I feel what's going on inside of my stomach? Can I feel the tension in my throat or my jaw and just start to develop a relationship with your body and then start seeking different somatic practices, breath work, applied neurology, somatic therapy, and see which ones work for your body, knowing that everybody and every nervous system is different and unique and find find some tools that work for you. Maybe it's as simple as going for a walk out in nature, or jumping into cold water, or taking a cold shower or slowing your exhalation down. Everybody's going to have their own tools and you just start to get curious about what helps you, what makes you feel grounded, what makes you feel safe. And then you can start to develop that sense of safety and then begin the work of, of healing and changing the behavior. This might be a, a silly question, but how do you know when something works? Because I've been trying to figure that out as far as just anything, anything that I'm doing. And, and I know that one of the things that I recently read through, I think it was Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. And one of the things that he mentioned is in looking back at my daily habits, he said, how do you know if you're doing the right one is when you don't do it and you miss it. And it really got me curious about a lot of these practices. Like, how do you actually know if it works and, and in what way? Is that just solely defined by myself or anyone else that's listening as far as 
these are the things that I would like to experience. And then once you're able to experience them, is that what it defines whether or not a practice is successful? Well, change at the level of the nervous system is instantaneous. And so I use my felt sense a lot to guide me in whether or not something is, um, is the right modality of, of anything for me, right? The right eating, the right movement, the right behavior change. And so I can tell, and I've spent some time developing this process, but I can tell right away if my body is supported by something in, into moving into a better state of being, or if I'm starting to move into threat. So there's a couple of things that are very simple to look for is, does my mouth dry up? or do I produce more saliva in my mouth? So if I, if my mouth dries up, I'm moving into more of a fight and flight an aroused response. And if I produce more saliva in my mouth, that's part of my digestive process. So I'm moving into a calmer rest and digest state of being, do I have more tension in my muscles? Am I start, are my shoulders starting to elevate up by my ears? Am I starting to feel a lot of tension around my eyes? What happens with my respiration? Can I take a nice big, full, deep breath and a long exhale, or does my respiration start to speed up and I move into upper chest breathing? Does my heart rate start to increase? Do I start to experience pain? Do I start to feel like it's hard to stay inside of my own body and be present in the moment? Because if I'm experiencing any of these threat signals, whatever we do, we get better at. That's a neurological principle too, because you're laying down more myelin in that pathway. And so it becomes a more well-worn path that your brain is going to turn to more quickly. And so if I'm creating threat over and over and over again, by doing something, even if somebody else told me that it worked for them, but if when I do it, it creates that threat response in, in my body, then I am getting better at creating that threat response. I'm getting better at moving into pain. I'm getting better at dissociating. I'm getting better at creating a migraine. And so that's not the practice for me. Like even meditation for some people, if you're stuck in a sympathetic nervous system response, a fight and flight response, it can be incredibly threatening and re-traumatizing to sit still in a room with your eyes closed. You need to be moving. Your meditation might be that you go for a walk and see how many things you can see and take in the details of the world around you and focus on your breath as you're walking so that you're still really present and you're being really mindful, but you don't have to sit still when you're in that place and start to experience flashbacks or trauma response. So you want to start to evaluate for yourself just by assessing how do I feel? Do I experience negative outputs after doing this activity? And if I do, maybe it's not the right activity for me. And maybe there's a, maybe there, maybe it's time to try something else. I've tried, I've certainly, I've worked with a wide array of healers and sometimes I try a certain modality of therapy and, and it makes me feel re-traumatized and I don't want to do that. I don't want to keep pushing into that same physiological trauma response in my body. So I know that for me, this isn't the right path. And I listen to that. Do you think when it comes to your trauma, because this is something I've been trying to discover on my own, does there become a point where it no longer makes sense to go deeper into some of these more traumatic Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, Peter Levine talks about trauma as being hell on earth, but also the catalyst for our 
expansion, <laughs> the catalyst for our growth, right? Like unresolved trauma is hell. Trauma resolved is a gift from the gods that leads to the expansion of our consciousness. So there is, there's, there's power in revisiting your trauma and in resolving it so that you no longer have to experience that same physiological response. Every time something re-triggers that old wound, you don't experience the same thing inside of your body so that you can have a new experience of the world. And in those healing modalities, that has been what has led me to a deeper understanding of the world, of the human experience, brought me back to my emotions, expanded my whole consciousness and way of seeing the world. But it does not serve me to keep re-traumatizing myself over and over again without resolving it, without moving in, in a forward direction. And I definitely believe that sometimes, especially if we're just retelling something over and over again, cognitively, like going back into the the narrative that we have in our mind of the trauma and just reliving it, there's no need to do that. Like I've lived that enough. And what I need is a new experience with it. I need a new experience inside of my body. And when I have achieved that, I, I really never have to go back and relive the trauma in the work that I do. I just allow, I notice when I'm triggered in life, I notice when I'm either my behavior or my felt senses is a trauma response, right? Like my heart starts beating, my mouth dries up, I get a lot of tension, or I find myself wanting to binge, or I find myself dissociating from my body. And then instead of like being like, what caused this? And I need to go back and figure out the thing and retell it and relive it. I just think, can I now create a different way of being in my body by doing something that my body and my nervous system, like, can I discharge this emotion? Can I then go for a walk? Can I call a friend? Can I jump on my trampoline or do some neuro drills and create a new experience in my body in response to this trigger? And I don't necessarily ever have to go back and figure out why the triggers there. I just create the new experience. Do you actually have a trampoline at your place? I do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I sure do. <laughs> You'll find me doing all kinds of things for my nervous system regulation. I wear colored glasses. I'll like wrap a scarf around my waist so that my organs are getting some stimulus to help a really important system called your interceptive system. I'll be training one eye. I'll be practicing box breathing and jumping on the trampoline with my music playing really loud because I need a lot of stimulus to my nervous system is a nervous system that needs a lot of stimulus to feel calm. And so, uh, yeah, absolutely. As I do things in my life that are, that are triggering to me because I want to expand my life. I want to grow and I want to move beyond those behaviors every time I do. So when I do a podcast or if I'm trying to enter into a new level of intimacy and relationship, or if I'm, um, you know, trust, putting myself out there in any way, posting something on social media that might be controversial, trying to create habit change in my life, trying to honor my body by eating intuitively when that feels really scary and hard. I will around those new ways of being do things to regulate my nervous system and make myself feel safe with it so that I can do those things and not have to experience the protective outputs of a brain and a nervous system that feels challenged, that feels threatened by those changes and by those risks and is holding on to the old trauma patterns. There's something really interesting that you you mentioned, and I think it's this concept of revisiting the past in order to find some of these new insights or answers. And I know for me, it, it's funny because I was just having a conversation with another friend of mine prior to us getting on, on this particular uh, 
recording and I was talking to her about how, for me, one of the things that really changed over the years is I remember the events, but the stories that I tell about those events are no longer the same. They've shifted actually pretty drastically from where I started five or 10 years ago to where I am now. And I think what I've started to realize is this concept of constantly revisiting the past in order to get to move into the future. I don't know if it fully speaks true to me because I think there are there's a time and a place for revisiting the past, but there's also a, an understanding that I've under, kind of started to develop that there be, there's almost a threshold for that. Now I don't have to, whenever I'm asked the question of what have you been through, what's your story, what's X, Y, and Z, I don't choose to go as far back anymore. And, and that's something that I've realized yeah. over time. And, it, and it's it's been a um, really fascinating shift to observe because I noticed that even the stories that I tell about my past are no longer the same exact way that I used to tell them. I used to take people into the, the deepest and the darkest details of the things that I went through. And now... I'll just create context around them. And then from there, choose to move into a different area. And I'm, I'm curious, just based on the work and everything that you've done, do you find yourself to be in similar shoes when it comes to this narrative that you choose to share about your past? Or is there a different way that you choose to present the circumstances that you've been through in your life? Yeah, I definitely can relate to that. I feel like there's certainly been times I've, I've spent a lot of time now healing the past and, and doing the work, the deep, dark work, and I am ready to go play and live a big life and not hold myself prisoner to this idea that I have to keep healing all of the time. And so I, I'm definitely in a phase in my life where I'm ready to, to keep moving forward and to let myself be more free of those old narratives and, um, not to bypass them because I, I haven't, I think I've done the work, but yeah, just like you said, there comes a point where it's like, this isn't serving me anymore to keep, to, to stay here in the dark tapping myself and healing, you know, like doing EFT tapping and breathing. And it's like, I, now it's, it's time for me to like get out in the world and go play. And I will still talk about my past. Um, when I feel like it really serves someone without a lot of detail, right? Like I have trauma in my past and I'm not going to get into the details of that because it's, it doesn't really serve me or anyone else. Um, but enough so that people can understand that it is possible to have a, a high a score adverse childhood experience to have a lot of trauma in your past to have times of your life that felt hopeless and to to stand for the possibility that healing is possible for all of us and that you you know if someone can can look at that and relate to it and know that, okay, there's somebody else that has experienced what I've experienced and they are able to move past it, then I do think it's important to share. And I think for me too, that was a lot of when I first got sober, what really helped me to get sober was that I, I was around a lot of other people doing the same thing. Um, 12 step is part of my story as well. And, seeing these people who talked about feeling the things that I felt inside, um, having the experience that I had experienced and yet they were different. They, they were able to 
have a great big life, to smile, to laugh, to be connected, to be free. And there was a freedom that I saw in them. And that gave me the thin reed of hope that I needed to put the work in to to something to hold on to by their example that that it was possible. And without that possibility, I wouldn't have ever, I because it's hard. And I, so I wouldn't have done the work if I had not had that example. So I do think it is of service sometimes to still tell my story, but not in such detail that it causes me harm. Was 12 step a conscious decision you made, or was that someone else that had made for you? Like your supporting cast? Uh, That was a conscious decision that I made. Um, I, uh, was it hard? New to accept that? Yeah. 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 It was really hard. Um, I, I, the first few years of my recovery, I hated every single minute of it. Um, I was angry. I was, I was really angry that, that I had to go through all of this. I did not feel a part of, I felt very lost. I had used alcohol as a coping mechanism. A a lot of my trauma was still not being resolved, even though I wasn't drinking. So now I was back to having all of these big emotions that I didn't know what to do with. And I really had to just do it anyway and put one foot in front of the other and hold on to people and let people love me even when I couldn't love myself, even when it, it was so difficult for me to receive love. Um, and I had to just take the action until things, until things finally shifted and there was a let go, but there's, there is power in just doing the action as somebody has walked the path before you and says, walk it like this. And then you just do it. And, um, and again, I don't think I would have been able to do that had other people not gone before me and been able to speak to these things that I felt inside that I, I, I didn't know other people felt until I heard them say it and then they were better. So it must then be possible for, for me to have that new experience too. Do you ever find it challenging to accept support from other people? Like not in, not necessarily in everything that you went through, but also just like in other circumstances, because I found that to be a big challenge that I had to work through primarily because there were chapters of my life where I thought that I could do it alone when it came to literally everything. And life unfortunately proved otherwise. <laughs> that you do need other people. It's one of my biggest lessons that I have to keep relearning. Um, One of the the beliefs that I'm continuously working to bake in is that it brings others joy to support me. So that, you know, not just that like, it's okay, but that like, it brings them joy to support me so that I can shine. And I, that's hard, you know, coming from an unstable environment where people are unstable in those early developmental years, it's difficult to allow yourself to trust and to be supported and to receive because it, it feels scary. It feels like I'm risking my survival at a survival level. That belief is threatening to me. And then as an entrepreneur that shows up in my business with not being able to create a team and be supported that way so that I can grow in my relationships that shows up because I want to be able to receive love from a partner, but it's difficult to trust if I don't believe I can be supported. And so I, 
have to do a lot of work on baking that belief in, deconstructing it and seeing where it comes from, seeing it as the core wound that it is. And then, you know, formulating that new belief, it brings people joy to support me. And then I intentionally bake that into my body. I do neuro drills that my body responds really well to while I'm monitoring in that belief so that I'm creating this felt sense of relaxation and safety in my body rather than threat responses, I think it. And then I, I write out if I, if I knew that this new belief was true, what actions would I take? And then I have to take the action, right? I have to take the action living into the reality of that new belief. I have to hire a team. I have to delegate. I have to be vulnerable in my relationships with my family, with my friends. I have to ask for, I have to take the action. And then what I do as part of my practice is I regulate my nervous system around taking the action. Because if I take the action and I don't create that regulation and safety in my body, I don't move the stress of it through. I don't discharge the emotions through, then maybe I ask for support and then I get a terrible migraine or I really want to binge, or I start to experience chronic pain because I haven't yet created a sense of safety around those new actions. So I'll treat the action like a really hard exercise and I'll prepare my body and my nervous system. I'll take the action and then I'll re-regulate by doing something my body and my nervous system like, so that I can start to teach myself it is safe to live in this reality where it brings people joy to support me. Correct me if I'm wrong, but do you have a course that people can also take? I think it was through your website or somewhere other place that you had mentioned where it allows them to discover some of these things that we just talked about. Yeah. So the membership site will teach tons of neuro training, um, applied neurology to train your nervous system to be more resilient and handle more stress. And then I have a group called energy creation and a group called food freedom, where we really do deep belief, deep core wound stuff to help people who are burnt out, to help people who have disordered eating, start to dismantle those deepest core wounds that are driving us into burnout, into overdoing, into exhaustion, into disordered eating at a, at a level, not just in our cognitive mind, but at the level of the nervous system, at the level of the body so that real change becomes possible. And you can really bring that into your world without having to suffer from protective outputs of your system or threat response. And where can people find this, all of this exactly? The best place is my website, which is brainbased-wellness.com. And you can sign up for a free video series there that'll teach you some really simple neuro drills to help reduce stress, to move emotions through the body, to just re-regulate yourself. And even if you just implemented that, when in times of stress to help your body and your nervous system regulate just those free exercises, you might find a huge change in what you can take on without experiencing some of the negative outputs that you don't want. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing to our future episodes so you can receive all of the latest content. Also, if you like what you heard, consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. Once again, we thank you for listening and we'll look forward to having you next time.